Section 11 of The Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Craster. The Natural History, Volume 4 by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 11, Book 17, Chapter 5. The Employment of Ashes. The agriculturists of the parts of Italy beyond the river, Padus, are such admirers of ashes for this purpose that they even prefer it as a manure to the dung of beasts of burden. Indeed, they are in the habit of burning dung for this purpose on account of its superior likeness. They do not, however, use them indiscriminately upon the same soil, nor do they employ ashes for promoting the growth of shrubs, nor, in fact, of some of the cereals, as we shall have occasion to mention hereafter. There are some persons who are of opinion also that dust imparts nutriment to grapes and cover them with it while they are growing, taking care to throw it also upon the roots of the vines and other trees. It is well known that this is done in the province of Gallia Narbonensis, and it is a fact even better ascertained that the grape ripens all the sooner for it. Indeed, the dust there contributes more to its ripeness than the heat of the sun. Chapter 6. Manure There are various kinds of manure, the use of which is of very ancient date. In the times of Homer, even, the aged king is represented as thus enriching the land by the labor of his own hands. Tradition reports that King Augeas was the first in Greece to make use of it, and that Hercules introduced the practice into Italy, which country has, however, immortalized the name of its king, Stercutus, the son of Faunus, as claiming the honor of this invention. M. Varro assigns the first rank for excellence to the dung of thrushes kept in aviaries, and lauds it as being not only good for land, but excellent food for oxen and swine as well. Indeed, he goes so far as to assert that there is no food that they will grow fat upon more speedily. We really have some reason to augur well of the manners of the present day. If it is true that in the days of our ancestors there were aviaries of such vast extent as to be able to furnish manure for the fields. Columella gives the second rank to pigeon manure and the next to that of the poultry-yard, but he condemns that of the aquatic birds. Some authors again are agreed in regarding the residue of the human food as the very best of all manures, while others would only employ the superfluous portion of our drink, mixing it with the hair that is to be found in the courier's workshops. Some, however, are for employing this liquid by itself, though they would mix water with it once more, and in larger quantities even than when originally mixed with the wine at our repasts, there being a double share of noxious qualities to correct, not only those originally belonging to the wine, but those imparted to it by the human body as well. Such are the various methods by which we vie with each other in imparting nutriment to the earth even. Next to the manures mentioned above, the dung of swine is highly esteemed, Columella being the only writer that condemns it. Some, again, speak highly of the dung of all quadrupeds that have been fed on cystesis, while there are others who prefer that of pigeons. Next to these is the dung of goats and then of sheep, after which comes that of oxen, and last of all the beasts of burden. Such were the distinctions that were established between the various manures among the ancients, such as the precepts that they have left us, 
and these I have here set forth as being not the mere subtle inventions of genius, but because their utility has been proved in the course of a long series of years. In some of the provinces, too, which abound more particularly in cattle, by reason of their prolific soil, we have seen the manure passed through a sieve, like so much flour, and perfectly devoid, through lapse of time, of all bad smell or repulsive look, being charged in its appearance to something rather agreeable than otherwise. In most recent times it has been found that the olive thrives more particularly in soil that has been manured with the ashes of the lime kiln. To the ancient rules Varro has added that corn land should be manured with horse dung, that being the lightest manure of all, while meadow land, he says, thrives better with a manure of a more heavy nature, and supplied by beasts that have been fed upon barley, this last tending more particularly to the better growth of grass. Some persons indeed prefer the dung of the beasts of burden to that of oxen even, the manure of the sheep to that of the goat, and the manure of the ass to all others, the reason being that that animal masticates the most slowly of them all. Experience, however, has pronounced against these dicta of Varro and Columella, but it is universally agreed by all writers that there is nothing more beneficial than to turn up a crop of lupines before they have podded with either the plough or the fork, or else to cut them and bury them in heaps at the roots of trees and vines. It is thought also that in places where no cattle are kept, it is advantageous to manure the earth with stubble or even fern. You can make manure, Cato says, of litter, or else of lupines, straw, beanstalks, or the leaves of the holm oak and quercus. Pull up the wallwort from among the crops of corn, as also the hemlock that grows there, together with the thick grass and sedge that you find growing about the willow plots. Of all this mixed with rotten leaves, you may make a litter for sheep and oxen. If a vine should happen to be but poor and meagre, prune the shoots of it and plough them in round about it. The same author says also, when you are going to sow corn in a field, fold your sheep there first. Chapter 7. Crops which tend to improve the land, crops which exhaust it. Cato says also that there are some crops which tend to nourish the earth. Thus, for instance, corn land is manured by the lupine, the bean and the vetch, while on the other hand, the chickpea exercises a contrary influence, both because it is pulled up by the roots and is of a salt nature. The same is the case too with barley, fenugreek, and fitches, all of which have a tendency to burn up corn land, as in fact do all those plants which are pulled up by the roots. Take care, too, not to plant stone fruits on corn land. Virgil is of opinion also that corn land is scorched by flax, oats, and puppies. Chapter 8. The proper mode of using manure. It is recommended also that the dung heap should be kept in the open air, in a spot deep sunk and well adapted to receive the moisture. It should be covered too with straw, that it may not dry up with the sun, care being taken to drive a stake of rover into the ground to prevent serpents from breeding there. It is of the greatest consequence that the manure should be laid upon the land while the west winds prevail and during a dry moon. Most persons, however, misunderstand this precept and think this should be done when the west winds are just beginning to blow and in the month of February only, it being really the fact that most crops require manuring in other months as well. At whatever period, however, it may be thought proper to manure the land, the greatest care should be taken that the wind is blowing due west at the time, and that the moon is on the wane, and quite dry. 
Such precautions as these will increase in a most surprising degree the fertilizing effects of manure. Chapter 9. The Modes in Which Trees Bear Having now treated at sufficient length of the requisite conditions of the weather and the soil, we shall proceed to speak of those trees which are the result of the care and inventive skill of man. Indeed, the varieties of them are hardly less numerous than of those which are produced by nature. So abundantly have we testified our gratitude in return for her numerous bounties. For these trees we find are reared either from seed, or else by transplanting, by layers, by slips torn from the stock, by cuttings, by grafting, or by cutting into the trunk of the tree. But as to the story that the leaves of the palm are planted by the Babylonians, and so give birth to a tree, I am really surprised that Trogus should have ever believed it. Some of the trees are reproduced by several of the methods above enumerated, others again by all of them. Chapter 10. Plants which are propagated by seed. It is nature herself that has taught us most of these methods, and more particularly that of sowing seed, as it was very soon evident how the seed on falling to the ground revived again in germination. Indeed, there are some trees that are capable of being propagated in no other way, the chestnut and the walnut, for instance, with the sole exception, of course, of such as are employed for coppice wood. By this method, too, as well as the others, some trees are propagated, though from a seed of a different nature, such, for instance, as the vine, the apple, and the pear the seed being in all these cases in the shape of a pip, and not the fruit itself, as in that of the chestnut and the walnut. The medlar, too, can also be propagated by the agency of seed. All trees, however, that are grown by this method are very slow in coming to maturity, degenerate very rapidly, and must often be renewed by grafting. Indeed, the chestnut even sometimes requires to be grafted. Chapter 11. Trees which never degenerate. On the other hand, there are some trees which have the property of never degenerating in whatever manner they are reproduced, the cypress, palm and laurel for instance, for we find that the laurel is capable of being propagated in several ways. We have already made mention of the various kinds of laurel, those known as the Augustan, the Bacallus and the Tynus are all reproduced in a similar manner. The berries are gathered in the month of January after they have been dried by the northeast winds which then prevail. They are then kept separate and exposed to the action of the air, being liable to ferment it left in a heap. After this, they are first seasoned with smoke, and then steeped in urine preparatory to sowing. Some persons put them in baskets of osier, and tread them down with the feet and running water, until the outer skin is removed, as it is found that the moisture which they contain is detrimental to them, and prevents them from germinating. A trench is then dug about a palm in depth, and somewhere about twenty of the berries are then put into it, being laid in a heap. This is usually done in the month of March. These kinds of laurel admit of being propagated from layers also, but the triumphal laurel can be reproduced from cuttings only. All the varieties of the myrtle are produced in Campania, from the berry only, but at Rome from layers. Democritus, however, says, that the Tarentine myrtle may be reproduced another way. They take the largest berries and pound them lightly so as to not crush the pips. With the paste that is thus made, a rope is covered and put lengthwise in the ground, the result of which is that a hedge is formed as thick as a wall with plenty of slips for transplanting. In the same way, too, they plant brambles to make a hedge by first covering a rope of rushes with a paste made of bramble berries. 
In case of necessity, it is possible at the end of three years to transplant the suckers of the laurel and the myrtle that have been thus reproduced. With reference to the plants that are propagated from seed, Mago treats at considerable length of the nut trees. He says that the almond should be sown in a soft, argillaceous earth upon a spot that looks towards the south, that it thrives also in a hard, warm soil, but that in a soil which is either unctuous or moist it is sure to die or else to bear no fruit. He recommends also for sowing these more particularly, which are of a curved shape like a sickle, and the produce of a young tree, and he says that they should be steeped for three days in diluted manure, or else the day before they are sown in honey and water. He says also that they should be put in the ground with a point downwards, and the sharp edge towards the northeast, and that they should be sown in trees and placed triangularly at the distance of a palm from each other, care being taken to water them for ten days until such time as they have germinated. Walnuts when sown are placed lengthwise, lying upon the sides where the shells are joined, and pine nuts are mostly put in sevens into perforated pots or else sown in the same way as the berries are in the laurels which are reproduced by seed. The citron is propagated from pips as well as layers, and the sorb from the seed by sucker or by slip. The citron, however, requires a warm site, the sorb a cold and moist one. Chapter 12. Propagation by Suckers Nature, too, has taught us the art of forming nurseries. When from the roots of many of the trees we see shooting up a dense forest of suckers, an offspring that is destined to be killed by the mother that has borne them. For by the shade of the tree these suckers are indiscriminately stifled, as we often see the case in the laurel, the pomegranate, the plane, the cherry, and the plum. There are some few trees, the elm and the palm for instance, in which the branches spare the suckers. However, they never make their appearance in any of the trees except those in which the roots, from their fondness for the sun and rain, keep close, as they range to the surface of the ground. It is usual not to place all these suckers at once in the ground upon the spot which they are finally to occupy, but first to entrust them to the nursery and to allow them to grow in seed plots after which they are finally transplanted. This transplanting softens down in a most remarkable manner those trees even which grow wild. Whether it is that trees, like men, are naturally fond of novelty and change of scene, or that on leaving the spots of their original growth, or to which they have been transplanted, they lay aside their bad qualities and become tame, like the wild animals, the moment they are separated from the parent stock. Chapter 13. Propagation by Slips and Cuttings. Nature has also discovered another method, which is very similar to the last, for slips torn away from the tree will live. In adopting this plan, care should be taken to pull out the haunch of the slips where it adheres to the stock, and so remove with it a portion of the fibrous body of the parent tree. It is in this way that the pomegranate, the hazel, the apple, the sorb, the medlar, the ash, the fig, and more particularly the vine are propagated. The keens, however, if planted in this way, will degenerate, and it has been consequently found a better plan to cut slips and plant them, a method which was at first adopted for making hedges with the elder, the keens and the bramble, but came afterwards to be applied to cultivated trees, such as the poplar, the alder and the willow, which will last grow if even the slip is planted upside down. In the case of cuttings, they are planted at once in the spot which it is intended they should occupy. But before we pass on to the other methods of propagation, 
it seems as well to mention the care that should be expended upon making seed plots. End of section 11. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.